Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for a wonderful day you've given us, Lord. We thank you that we can come here and worship you, Lord, and learn more about you, Lord. Pray that you um, give us the boys your um, wisdom, Lord, and um, pray that you open up our hearts, Lord, and listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, this morning, we're continuing in our series in Genesis, and we're in chapter 12. Chapter 12. I hope you noticed the repetition in the song that Larissa sang to us, Take the World, But Give Me Jesus. Because here is a man who is a believer, but who chose to take the world. And, of course, we're going to read the first part of his actual sad, sorry story. Thankfully, our message is entitled Abram and Lot, so we're going to see the better person and the worse person side by side. So let's read at verse 10 of uh, Genesis chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a, you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. By the way, just exactly what Abram said, wasn't it? And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that they took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him with his wife and all that he had. In other words, he was actually taken to the border and sent packing. Chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. That's into the south country. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot who went with Abram also had flocks, herds, and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. 
And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zohar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valleys and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham removed his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. His second altar, he built, he actually built seven in all. Now, let's have a good look now. One thing we've got to give great thanks for, that God didn't change his mind about Abram. And so he restated that the covenant that he had already begun to show to him in the earlier verses of chapter 12 were certainly going to be fulfilled. We could actually divide Genesis up a different way from what we saw last week. We could say that the covenant was based in chapters 1 and 2, the basis of the covenant. In chapters 3 to 11, we have the crisis of the covenant, a man's great fall and what happened. Now we're going to see what we call the focus of the covenant, it's going to be on Abram, it's going to be on Isaac, it's going to be on Jacob, it's going to be on Judah, and it's also going to be on Joseph. In fact, Joseph gets almost as much time in the portrait of Genesis as, as Abram does, 13 chapters. Uh, Joseph gets this very high memoranda because he's the saviour of Israel. Make no mistake about it, without Joseph being handpicked by God. It wasn't you that sent me down here, he said, but God to save many people alive. So we're in the section now of Abram's life, more particularly, and the focus of the covenant is very much to the fore. Now look closely what's going on. There was a famine in the land. These can last in Israel up to seven years. When I was there in 1974, 
we actually travelled through the plains of the Philistines and the sweet corn they had in had already tipped its lid and was pointing back towards the ground. And the guide said, if we don't get any rain in three weeks, the whole crop will fail. They got the early rain, but they weren't getting any of the latter rain that Joel speaks about. They, in the early rain, they plant. In the latter rain, they harvest. The latter rain brings everything to fruition. But there's a famine in the land, and it becomes as dry as the outback of Australia. you ever been there? You'll know what I mean. So dry that you can't even hardly breathe the air. Well, what were they to do? Well, later, they dug wells. See, underneath this soil, there's vast volumes of water. Just as in South Australia, which is a very dry track, there's a whole lake underground that they've now discovered of pure water, purest water of all. But they're not in the business of digging, you see, and that's a big problem that, people, that believers have. They don't dig enough in the Bible. And then they wonder why their lives are as dry as dust. Shouldn't wonder at all. Well, so what do you do? Well, what happens is that people move out of the actual territory, but like the Aborigines, and they move south to, to, to Egypt. Why go to Egypt? Well, there's the River Nile. And you fly over Egypt, as I have done, you see a great swath of green on one side of the, of the river and a great swath of green on the other side. I mean, you'd be a fool not to go there. Well, supposedly. But I have to tell you, only fools do go there because they're very unreliable. And we were there, and they were charging us for things that had been paid for and protested that it wasn't. And I remember one of the prophets saying, if you put your weight on Egypt, it will be like a stick that goes straight through the hand. And I said to myself, you know, I thought you Egyptians might be different now from what your ancestors are, but you seem to be very much the same. I'm not wanting to disparage every Egyptian, by the way, but I'm talking about a quite a converse of people. Well, most people, they migrated to Egypt. And so you either came down the King's Highway, which is on the course on the eastern side, or you come down the coastal road, which is on the western side. Uh, where uh, Abram and Lot were, they probably went down the Jericho Road to, to Beersheba, and crossed over into the uh, coastal plain road from there. But to Egypt they went in what I have called in the note the southern migratory drift. Now, it was quite easy because that's the way everyone went. And Christians have to wake up to the fact that there's a drift in our society, a drift that's going speedily down, you know, Dead fish, they go with the stream. What do live fish do? They swim against it. And you've got to be a live fish. You've got to be a Christian that says, I'm not taking the easy way. 
I'm going to take the hard road that leads to God, the narrow way. The broad road leads to destruction. Well, the drought was pretty bad, so they moved. They had some tents and they had some flocks, but not many, enough to get them to Egypt without losing too many of them, I would imagine. We're not told, but probably uh, it wasn't much, but it was enough to get there and to get started. But they're almost at the border and suddenly Abram realises that he's putting himself in a very difficult fix because Sarah is a very beautiful woman and so was Rebecca. And by the way, half the film stars of Hollywood are Jews, Jewesses. They're beautiful women. Make no mistake about it. Hollywood doesn't have them there for nothing. They're great show ponies. They really are for Exhibit A. Of course, you and I would say, well, beauty can only be skin deep. But it's still there, isn't it? And there are beautiful women. No question about it. Don't you, anyway, you go away from me as saying, you know, Jackie's not very keen on women. That's just not true. <laughs> I wouldn't have married my wife for 52 years if it was so. All right. So he hits on the idea, you were to say that you are my sister. Now, Peter showed us last week that they were a very close family and because they were a believing family, they married within the family. And he actually married his half-sister. And so, technically, she was his sister. But there was a relationship that was nearer and dearer. She was his wife. Isn't that right? There's no closer relationship to a man than his wife. Make no bones about that. Mothers and fathers still get a look in, so do grandparents still get a look in. But if you marry a woman, you are absolutely glued to her as long as you both shall live. I hope you understand that that's what marriage is about, though you are younger here. You are absolutely committed to a lifelong relationship. That's a covenanted commitment. Well, he thought he'd got away with it. And so down to Egypt they go. And it all, all seems to be very sweet and nice and lovely. But what's happened is that God's chosen line that has come from Adam through Noah, through Shem, through to Abraham, is now seriously threatened. Will this promised line now cease? Hmm. When we get into a compromised situation, something suffers, and someone suffers, and the truth, more than anything else, suffers. So, down they went, and below and behold, they said, my word, this woman that's with Abraham is a beautiful woman. So, chit-chat round the court, got to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh included her. As Abraham knew, Abraham knew, she, he would. 
she becomes part of the royal, dare I say it, part of the royal harem. What a disgraceful position to have put Sarai in by Abraham. I suggest to you that it was a very tenuous compromise. Oh, he gained from it. He suddenly becomes absolutely as wealthy as is possible to be made. The Pharaoh's got so much at his disposal that suddenly he finds himself a very rich man. Flocks and herds and all kinds of things which we read. I suggest to you in my notes that it was probably the bride price. Uh, he was paying for the fact that he had taken over Abram's sister. Oh, you see, if you get into a compromise with the world, you can get very wealthy very quick. I know a number of believers who have got very, very wealthy. I remember from this very pulpit years ago, one of our workers, Mr. Alf Martin, telling us the story of going round the big warehouse with a believer who had become, well, I suppose today we would say filthy rich, showing them all the the great wealth that he had accumulated. And Alf being the kind of character that he was, waited till he got to the door and says, I'm, I'm very much aware of how the Lord has blessed you, he said, but what about your soul? What about your soul? Do you feel that you are the blessed of the Lord? And he hung his head in shame and said, well, it's not going very well spiritually. And perhaps that's exactly what Abram needed to do, hang his head in shame and said, I've become very wealthy, but it's not going too well spiritually. So what happens? God intervenes and mighty plagues sweep through Pharaoh's house. We don't know what they were, but they were, of course, a precursor to the, to the, the plagues on Egypt under Moses. Precursor. So much so that Pharaoh did his sums and said, we were all right before, 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 before I took that beautiful woman in. And it seems as though that was a bad omen because then, and he probably wasn't thinking of, of Israel's God, the true God, he was thinking of the gods of Egypt, began to plague his house. So, Having done his sums, he says, we've got to get rid of that woman. Beautiful that she is, she's got to be got rid of out of our family. So he calls for Abram and has a fair dinkum face to face with him. Oh yes, fancy when an unbeliever has to rebuke sharply a believer. I tell you, some of the unbelievers have better standards than some of the believers I know. And when you get rebuked by an unbeliever, you should take stock of yourself. 
real stock. So much so that what does he do? He gives both Abram and Lot their marching orders, takes them to the boundary and says, go. And with the implied implication, don't come back. One of the big problems for Israel was how often they went to Egypt and how often they turned to Egypt. Well now, looking on, back from Egypt they come to the south. It's providential return, I've called it, because what's happened is that they're both man and wife. Still. Only God and his providence could have made that to happen. Because if you give away your wife to someone else, you're going to have one's own job to get her back. David had his problems in this regard, and so did Saul. But in the good providence of God, God overruled Abram's mistake, a big mistake as it was, a large sin that it was, he overruled it and took him out and brought him back. And I'm saying to you that there is a providence working in believers' lives that may be unknown, but it's not unfelt. You know, if I didn't believe in the providence of God, I think I would have gone mental by now. But after 60 years living by faith, I think I know a thing or two about the providence of God. I can still see myself kneeling to pray for a student who needed money for, to pay a lawful bill. His was for 200 mine was for 2000 I didn't dare tell him because it would overwhelm him. And I'm praying there very, very consciously for the student. And at the same time, I'm saying now, Lord, I'm in your business and I am your property. Look after it. The student came to me the next day and said, your prayers have been answered. I said, none of this my prayers. What about yours? You prayed with me. Your prayers were answered and mine. So, living by faith in the providence of God. It's a wonderful experience, by the way, even though sometimes the cruise of oil just about fails and the barrel of meal is just about finished. But you learn to trust God. And Abram now is learning. What's he learning? He's learning to live by faith. Oh, yes. It's a hard road for him to learn it, but he is learning to live by faith. But the real problem now hasn't quite gone away because they've both come back wealthy men and they're both trying to live in the same part of the land and they can't fit. Now, it's very easy for you to say to me, well, it was a question of, of, of oil and water don't mix. There were differences, difference, it's chalk and cheese. But, 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 they were both believers. You go to Second Peter 2, you will find that he is actually classified as a justified person in the sight of God. Lot was a believer. 
Let's not let that be forgotten by us. He was a believer. But he couldn't get on with his fellow believer because he had got so wealthy that the land could not contain both of them. What what are to do? What are to do? What were they to do? Well, they'd returned into the promised land. That was a good sign. They'd returned to Bethel where he'd first built an altar to the Lord. Is that a message for us? It certainly has. Do you have a family altar? Do you have a personal altar? Have you got away from God and it's time to return to the altar that you first built? I hope I'm giving you a conscience because God is in the business of bringing you back in true allegiance and loyalty to himself. He returned to the altar that he first built. And there he called upon the name of the Lord. Oh yes. He returned to God in faith and fellowship was now restored. He certainly was united to God in the covenant, but now communion with God was restored to him. Well, now, there had to be a decision made. Oh, yes. So he, he separated from the world, Egypt, and now there's got to be a separation from the flesh, Lot. So he says, you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And I can hear some of you saying, hey, he shouldn't have done that. He was the older man. He had first choice. I could hear some saying, surely he would have given place to his senior uncle, because that's what Abram was, an uncle, and of a later, an earlier generation, but there's big-hearted Abram. Well, what's all this about, Abram? Well, he said, I've learned to live by faith in God alone. So I'm going to leave the choice with God. But Lot, you can have the first choice. So Lot chose them all the well-watered plains of the Jordan. They were like the garden of the Lord. As you come, oh, sorry, the writer put in, as you come to Egypt. He had left Egypt, but Egypt hadn't left him. As you come to Zohar, that first fertile city in the plains. So he chose. It was a momentous choice. The choices of life are brief but endless, said the German-Swiss philosopher Goethe. And young men and young women have to make choices in their teen years. And in their early 20s, they've got to make choices. And there are some very difficult choices to be made. And that's where parents have got to come into the mix and grandparents come into the mix and get it right. If Lot had been wise, he would have deferred to his father, to his uncle Abram and said, Abram, you have the right of first choice, but what do you advise? Well, there was other parts of the territory that he could have lived in quite comfortably. 
but he was goggled-eyed for these well-watered plains, and oh my, am I going to make a mint there. I'm very mindful of a student who, long years ago, he'd finished at the Bible school, and I said to him, now what are you going to do? He was a very personable young fellow, very likeable. He said, I'm going to go out of here, he said, to make a mint. can still hear it echoing in my brain. I tell you, he did make a mint, but he didn't make much else. Oh, yes. He had personality plus, and he could certainly sell the product. But spiritually... was down all the way. I never let myself forget that young man. And I prayed for him for long years and eventually the whole empire that he built collapsed just like Lot did. He was a very chastened, humble, middle-aged man then. He never quite came back to where he could have been, but at least he'd come to his senses and come back to God. So, the problem. The conflict greatly increased wealth, the consideration given by the older man to the younger. His problem was that the grass looked greener over the fence. It's a problem that youth does have, by the way. The grass always looks greener over the fence. Till you get there and you find it's not so green as you thought it was, and you were the one that was green because you didn't see that. So what happens? He shows himself to be a greedy, covetous, ooh, I use a the word there, grubby, man. And you know he didn't care a whit for his uncle Abram. He said if you want to live on the heights in Israel, that's your concern. We have no record of him ever coming back into the land. Not. We'll find as you go through the story that he, these other men saw these great well-watered plains and these cities, and they came to take it all off. Lot was taken with it. What happened? After that, he returned to Sodom. God had to destroy Sodom to get Lot out of it. Well, he leaves. That's a very sad, sorry story. How am I going back there? Am I turning the... Oh, I'm sorry. The solemn lesson. Abraham remains, remains true to God and remains in the land. Lot lives with the evil, wicked, and that by his own covetous choice. We're told that just Lot vexed his righteous soul with the filthy conversation of the wicked. 
but he was stuck there because of his greed, because of his Midas madness and covetous greed. So now the Lord appears, and he says to him in no uncertain terms, Lift up now your eyes. Was Abraham a bit tempted to think that he had made the wrong choice in giving the young fella first choice? He's now to be reminded that God has the final say. The last word is always with God. Hallelujah. You and I might say this and say that and say so forth and so on, but the last word is always God's word. So, he's now to lift up his eyes as the true man of faith who loves his Lord. Now look, look east, look west, look south, look north. And he's here up on the plains of Mamre, near to Hebron, where he gets a very good view of very great deal swarm of the land. He said, have a good look, and look well, and look long, and look hard. I've given it all to you, the whole lot. Oh, by the way, that also included Sodom and Gomorrah, which, of course, later, as the Bible predicts, will become again a luxurious garden of the Lord. A whole lot is given to him. And he says, what's more, I've given it to you and to all your descendants in perpetuity and forever. And by the way, your people will become so numerous that if you can count the dust of the ground, you'll be able to count them. Now he's told to walk throughout the length of the land and possess it. Now we're not told whether he did this. He certainly did it in chapter 14 because he had to cross the whole land to bring back Lot from the kings that had taken him captive. But... The main thing to notice is that he's told the whole land is his, and what does he do? He goes to Hebron, builds a second altar to the Lord, and recognises that God is God, and God's word is the truth. My word, you see a man's faith flowering. It is blossoming. He's prepared to take God at his word, and that's it. That's it. Now, he built a second altar. Oh, yes, he did. He built it because he wanted to make sure that he was honoring God and his covenant word to him. So he built it, and then he is very much aware that he's now the heir of all that he surveys. Just let me look at one or two things. He is in truth now fast becoming what the Bible calls the friend of God. Abraham is the only person that is actually called the friend of God in a specific individual way. Jesus calls his disciples his friends. But it's being said in a collective sense. 
he's made the right choice. And as I've been teaching quite a few of my friends this last little while, one with God is a majority. It is. We stand true to God, God will stand most certainly true to us. No doubt about it. So let me look very quickly now at the learning outcomes. First thing that we've all got to keep in mind is the choices of life are brief but endless. How we wish that some young people could be able to change their minds about the course of their lives. That doesn't happen very frequently. It does not. And how important it is that the choices of life of the young in setting their life's course is undergirded by elders, by parents, by grandparents, by uncles, by aunties, that we do get launched in the right course and in the right way. My problem is that, as I have put down in the notes here, how important the choices of the young in setting their life's course, they need older mentors like Abram to guide them if they would be guided. One of the stern lessons I've learned in my older years is it doesn't pay to give advice to people don't, that don't, 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 well, don't want it. You're wasting your time. You might think they need it, but they don't want it. So what's the point? I am so thankful that there are certain young people that I know who are waking up that they need advice. Old people don't always get it right, but mostly. Young people don't always get it wrong either, but mostly. So, you remember Samuel and Eli? God called that Samuel three times before the old priest woke up that it was God calling him. Talk about slow off the mark. But thankfully Samuel kept going to the priest until the priest said, it is the Lord. Next time he speaks, say, speak, Lord, your servant ears. And I want to say to you, if you're young here today, and I put young, anyone below 40, don't you fall into this trap that if you've got to 25, you're over the hill and far away. You are still in the process of growing. When Moses was fully come to years, was 40 years of age. So if you're young, you need counsel. And by the way, if you're old, you do too. And some of us are older, we need counsel, all right. We need to be straightened out and stood up sometimes and made aware that perhaps we're not being quite so wise as we should be. Well, now, quickly. Three, what will it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And you have a classic portrayal of that in Lot as you come through these chapters. 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Paul writes about Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. And John has a very trenchant comment on it in his uh, epistle which is put very well in the, new, in the New International Version. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Come to seven. Midas madness and covetous greed have been the besetting sin of many a man and a woman. I give you one case. I actually have a message in which there's something like 15 cases of this in the scripture. And of course you've got Lot as one of them. You're after money, you can't serve God and mammon. You can serve God with mammon, but you can't serve God and mammon. Now take care, said the Lord Jesus, and be in your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now we've got to learn this truth, I tell you. Does not consist in the abundance of what we have. I am thinking of a case that's not too far away from Hamilton, where I visited a couple, and they were having big problems with their growing teenage son. Very big problems. And I can see it to this day. They were protesting that they had given them everything. And they had. He lacked for nothing. And when I turned to him to give his reply, he said, in very agonizing words, they've given me everything, but they've given me nothing. So I said, can you explain yourself, young fellow? What do you mean? Well, they've given me everything, but they've never shown me any love. They've never shown me any companionship. They have been in the business of making great wealth, but I have just been a kind of ringin'. It was never to be forgotten by me. The abundance of the things that people have does not make for the good life. You might be more comfortable, but don't tell me that you are living the good life, because you're not. Why? Because the problem of much wealth is that God has left out. You don't seem to think you need him. And, oh, dare you pray, give us this day our daily bread? That's, 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 that's just, that's just not, not true. Well, now, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Lot went down into Egypt, got a wife from Sodom, down to Sodom, got a wife there, had children there, sons-in-laws there, married, and... But for two daughters who were lost, by the way, who were unbelievers, he lost a lot. A lot. Bad company 
ruins good morals. You can tell a man and a woman by the company they keep. Now, two last things to keep in mind. Reflect on Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Let your conversation be without covetousness. For he has said, no, let your conversation be without... And be content with such as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And remember, God always gives the best to those that leave the choice with him. You're prepared to live in faith and say, Oh God, you're the creator of the universe. You know what I need. And in your good time and in your good way, pray for this. I'm thinking of a very close friend of mine who prayed for years about a particular matter. And eventually, the prayer was answered. And when I spoke to her, she says, you know, I have been praying about this fervently for the last two years. Every day I've been praying about this. And now, the Lord has undertaken. Let's pray together, shall we? This day, our Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, your amazing providence, the way in which you overrule our lives. We make mistakes. We fall by the way. And you are the God who can overrule our mistakes and lead us in a right path as you did with Abram. Help us that we pray not to make the mistakes of Lot that are fatal and whose consequences are so great that he himself was saved by fire. So this day we pray, our Father, that you will remind us of your great goodness, of your great faithfulness, that you are the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to you, our God and Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.